Hello, and welcome back to the Moonlight Game Devs podcast, the podcast where game developers share the story behind their latest game. Today I had a chat with Tom Goodchild. He's the solo developer of the 2D top-down roguelite Socketeers. Tom has been working in the games industry for a very long time at various studios. He shared what he learned from diving tent-first into indie game development and was also very reflective on what he would have done differently. I think that anyone looking to start their own games company can learn something from what he has to share. Hey Tom, welcome to the show. Bye Mark. I think it's fair to say that you're an industry veteran. You've been working in games for many, many years. And recently you've also been working on your, well, latest release, Socketeers. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of your background and how you got into game development? Uh, yeah, so um, uh, I was a wash up for my father when I was about 19 wondering what to do with my life. Um, I, I went to college and then was kind of, you know, at a sort of point in my life where I just didn't know what to do, what I wanted to be. And my mum found an article in the newspaper saying you can actually do a, a video games degree um, in Dundee. I was living in Somerset at the time, sort of down south of England. So I applied with a very poor GMVQ in IT and wrote a long begging letter saying, I really like games, please let me in. And for some reason they let me in. So it was a programming degree. It was the first, um, the video games technology degree that I think you did yourself, Mark. Um, yeah, I did something similar. I did the CGAD degree. Right. I that wasn't around when I was around, but um, uh, yeah. And somehow I got on, I'd never programmed before. I think I programmed a little bit in basic. Um, also I wanted to be a game designer really which I kind of knew and I kind of didn't. I didn't know there was a sort of role specifically for that. Um, and there still kind of isn't and is, depends on where you work. Um, but uh, I did the programming degree anyway, just to sort of out of sheer will, I managed to squeeze through. Um, and then, yeah, after doing that, after graduating in 2002, um, started looking for a job and got turned down like everybody else does. Um, I was living in London and... I managed to get a job at Wide Games, um, which is a sort of uh, a sort of not a triple A studio. It was kind of an interesting time when I first started. There were sort of games that were made, which were sold for forty quid, but really weren't more worth than sorry, worth more than about a tenner. They were kind of right, you know, middle tier games. They weren't triple A, but they still our attitude at that point was to charge forty quid regardless of the quality. So. Were these sort of uh, like indie studios? Could you say that? You you could probably say now. I mean, at the time, you know, they were just also around studios that weren't producing the big games like Grand Theft Auto and stuff like that. They were just sort of producing, you know, the sort of more middling games that did all right, just about managed to turn a profit. Um, and the game they were working on was called Prisoner of War, and they finished that and decided to do a sequel. And they interviewed for some designers and... I managed to get on the team and I think their job lasted about three weeks. And then the project was canned by uh, Codemasters and I was made redundant <laughs> and I just moved to Brighton and just rented a flat. So I had a massive panic. Oh. <laughs> um, and then back, well, it was back to interviewing again. Um, and I interviewed in Dundee, ironically, after moving to London and then to Brighton. Because a friend of mine, a couple of friends who had gone straight from uni to, to work at uh, Viz, 
uh, Van der Kahl Industry Systems, uh, Interactive Systems, sorry, which is Chris Van der Kahl's earlier projects before 4J and stuff. Um, and they got me on as a, as a designer scripter. I think they liked the fact that I could kind of program because they had this programming language, which was kind of bespoke. And they got me working on NARC. So NARC was my first released game. <laughs> oh, NARC. Um, yeah, so that was my sort of entry into the into the games industry. And then I kind of worked at various places, some bigger games, some smaller games. None of them very good. <laughs> okay, so thanks for sharing your background there. For some people in the audience who might have not worked at game studios, can you give us a brief overview of what the tasks of a game designer are at mm. a larger studio with quite a few people working there? So... It really depends on the studio. Like, if you're making a racing game, then it's quite different from making a first-person shooter. Your your role is quite different. Um, with a racing game, it's unlikely you'll be doing any sort of scripting at all. But if you were doing like an adventure game, I still think Uncharted and games like that still pretty much use the same systems where you know you're placing down waypoints and scripting the AI to do stuff. So it really does depend on the studio. So for my first real job on NARC, it was that kind of role where it was laying down nav mesh, which was, you know, a boring job, but it was my first job in the industry. So, you know, I didn't care what it was. Um, so it was sort of just laying navigation points for the AI to get around the city. And then you would script missions, which are basically a series of trigger points and then telling the AI to do stuff. And then you'd have cut scenes and then action sequences and stuff like that. And then, you know, it's it's it pretty much the same thing as it's still done now, um, but just sort of a much lower budget. Um, and then, you know, you bug fix to try and to fix of all the mistakes and stuff like that. And then you move on to your next mission. Um, so the day-to-day work would be working in Max at the time, 3D, 3DS Max, um, placing kind of, nodes to like spawn enemies and spawn um interactive ai you know and then scripting using a bespoke scripting thing for viz um telling the ais what to do where to stand what happens when the player gets near them and stuff like that it's all the kind of rubber meets the road kind of part of of games a lot of game designers rubber meets the road really which is if that doesn't make any sense as a term it's sort of it's the sort of closest point to the player you know um because, you know, a lot of the high-level rendering stuff is quite far away. You know, it's, it's sort of low-level system stuff. And then the kind of general AI behavior is quite closer. But you're really, you know, actually the kind of moment-to-moment experience is kind of sculpted by you, especially as a mission scripter. Um, so, yeah, that was that was Viz. We did, like, an open-world mission scripting. And then my next job on MotoGP was was totally different. It was, it was still some... 3D modeling work, but it was more like designing tracks. So you'd have to kind of make shapes out of nerves or splines, um, which are kind of three-dimensional mathematical curves. You'd lay them out and connect them together to make rudimentary racing tracks and then race them to see what they're like. And then if they liked them, we would they would go into full production as, as, as proper tracks. So my, my job on MotoGP was that, designing tracks. I also took over the handling from my lead designer because he didn't really seem to be able to do the job that well. I don't think he kind of likes racing games that much. 
So I, I took that off him. So I did. I was responsible for most of the handling on MotoGP3, although it got all changed at the last minute. That sounds pretty pretty stressful. Yeah, well, um, the games industry is basically so volatile that nearly every studio I've ever worked at shut down. So it's kind of par for the course, really. Um, and on that particular project, the team who made MotoGP 1 and 2 had failed to sign this new game they were trying to sign called Avalon. It was this sort of open-world shooter thing, a bit like Battlefield. Um but Battlefield 2 kind of arrived at the time they were trying to get it signed and theirs weren't quite on the same level. Um, so I think that they, you know, needed a job or needed work and they were the main studio for Climax at the time. So we all got made redundant <laughs> and the studio was shut down and they took OGP back. Um, I think it was maybe slightly out of order than that. So all of the handling work that I'd done had kind of got reverted and taken out at the last minute because of it. Um, but you've got to learn to let go of these things, really. You really have. I mean, it was kind of very precious about my work when I was younger, but, like, it can't be, really. I mean, for multiple reasons, but one of which is because, you know, you're going to – either the project's going to get canned or someone else is going to have a completely different opinion of it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, things can change because of playtesting anyway, so trying not to be precious is definitely important. Thanks for giving me a better understanding of what a game designer does at a company. It's it's kind of hard to imagine, and I guess kind of like I expected, it can be quite a few different things, and the job can mean quite a few different things at these different companies. Well, at some point, you did decide to leave employment and do your own thing. Can you give us a little bit of background behind the motivation for doing that? I was just fed up with working for somebody else, I think. Um, Fair enough. It was, you know, it's like you just make these game ideas and, and not all I'm saying the mind's any better, but like you, I just got frustrated with all these decisions were being made that were kind of making the products usually end up worse. And I'd have to, even if I was a lead designer, still be fighting with people above me to try to come out with some sort of game that was sort of half decent. It was always a continual struggle. I just felt like a kind of fight and I just thought it would be much easier and much less of a fight if I didn't have to justify every single decision I make and I could just make one. And then by the afternoon I could have implemented it instead of having to write the design up, then take it and then get it signed off. And it's kind of whole, you know, you could come up with an idea on a game on a big studio and you wouldn't see that idea in the game for months. Whereas on your own stuff, you could have it in the same day. So that was obviously very appealing. Yeah, I guess when you go solo dev, you can sort of cut out all those long processes and communication that take so long. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's understandable, right? I mean, it is a business. Um, I think the thing is that, like, people are looking for guarantees when there aren't any games. Don't There aren't any guarantees in games. And, like, as soon as you try to guarantee something, you're basically ripping off something else, and that's going to fail. So... You have to take a punt, and the whole the whole idea is that the more original you get, the more you're going to have to spend time trying to get it right. So it's yeah, it's it's complex, and it's understandable that people feel like this. But it's just you look at teams that have been left alone, and look at teams that haven't had you know meddling, and they usually come out with better products in the end, which are more successful. Which is the kind of all irony of it. Goldeneye was 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 a good example of that. I mean, I, I work with some of the people on Goldeneye, and like every radical, but I didn't really speak to them about it. But I heard that, you know, everyone was concentrating on 
conquered Bad Fur Day and the GoldenEye team was quite small and left to their own devices and people didn't realise, you know, didn't think it was going to be that good. And because of that, they just left to do their own thing. And, you know, Dark Souls is a kind of similar story. Demon's Souls was from software, sort of last attempt at that that kingdom, whatever, I can't remember the name of the original game series, but that that would that they were doing a new version of that and that was kind of not going well. And they, the management just like, do whatever you want with it. And it became, you know, a real success. So I, I kind of of the opinion that, um, I mean, you know, it's obviously a quite cliche thing to say, but kind of leaving a team to do what they want. A supercell do work with that as well, where they kind of leave teams to come up with their own ideas and then present them back to the management. I do believe that's usually ends up with a better product. Yeah, I mean, game development folks are often known for being creatively minded and having a lot of their own opinions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that preparation. You mentioned earlier that as a game designer, you had all mm. kinds of tasks. Some were more scripting-oriented, some were more 3D modeling-oriented. And I'd just like to know at what base you were when you were ready to quit your job. Yeah, let's just talk. focus on the skills that you had before you quit your job. And Did you maybe, like use those skills to create a prototype or something like that? No, both of which were big mistakes. I think I was just sort of tired of it all and needed a break. So that was kind of my formal excuse for that. Um, but really I should have been more, I think sort of seeing people who have had a lot bigger success than me, they prototype first. And when they knew that they had something, they then took it to publishers and then quit their job afterwards. Whereas I just quit my job mostly out of frustration and then try to make something. And, and skills-wise, yeah, there weren't any. I mean, I just, you know, I had been, I, I kind of knew enough about programming. I hadn't actually been programming for years, but I kind of knew enough of the principles to kind of un- have a basic understanding of how things are done um, because I'd had to spend a lot of my day talking to programmers and trying to get the best out of the game. And so you have to have some idea, some grounding in, in the technology to get the best out of programmers for your game, definitely. That's that's a key, especially if you're doing stuff like game field, you need you need to have some sort of technical idea. Um but I didn't hadn't programmed for years and I hadn't got any art skills. Um I used to be able to draw quite well. So I went with neither skill and 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 just started in Unity thinking it would do it all for you, as everyone does, and then realized it doesn't really. But at least it kind of gives you a, a grain, a groundwork in it, and it, you know all of the kind of really boring low level stuff. Well, boring for me, is done automatically. Um, and then I started a game, and, and again, I hadn't really thought the idea through, and I just started on something because I was just happy to be working on my own idea. I think that's kind of my biggest mistake with um, with Socrates was just that I just wanted to make something for myself, and I didn't really think about its market or how original it was. I just was so happy to be making my own thing, and then. I kind of, once the mold was set, I spent kind of like the rest of my career doing similar thing where I just tried to kind of game design it to make it as interesting as possible. But because the DNA was so set in stone, it was like a twin stick, you know, top-down roguelike shooter, and there's a million of those. It kind of, it was very hard to kind of get any sort of distance and any sort of originality that hadn't already been covered by these huge titles like nuclear throne and like um into the gungeon so i kind yeah i kind of shot myself in the foot there really yeah those are both some very very big titles so we meant you mentioned ripping something off versus originality mm. you just quit your job 
and it seemed like you didn't really have a game idea or a prototype already. So how did you approach that? How did you start from basically z ground zero and started creating your game? Did you just open up Unity and start mm. experimenting and working out things from there? Or how did you approach that? Pretty much. As I said, I didn't really... I, well, the the game idea I had was I'd, I'd always been fascinated with um, um, Space Hulk on the 3DO, which is a totally showing my age, um, old school uh, sh shooter where it was kind of a mix between Doom and like a tactical XCOM. You would have a short amount of time to give orders to your teammates and then it would cut back to first person and then you'd be moving around the interiors of the Space Hulk and shooting aliens. And I just really liked the mix of trying to kind of, you're under a real-time pressure to try and kind of move these squads forwards and then switching to first person and then kind of fighting through. I really liked that idea. But I wasn't good enough to do 3D, so I thought, I'll do it in 2D. And then sort of quickly found when making it that that was not going to work because of the limited line of sight you have from a top-down point of view. Um, I just sort of – I'm quite good at kind of noticing whether an idea is going to work or not and just dropping it. Um, but I'd already quit my job at that point, so I was like, oh, God, I've got to make something out of this. And so I kind of pursued this other idea of like something similar to another old game where you didn't have any weapons yourself and you try to take possession of, of other AI and you know, use them against – uh, you know each other um and i like the idea in principle but the, the thing i didn't realize when i first started was that kind of you're making a rod for your own back because it means that every single enemy you make then needs to be controllable by the player which is a lot of effort um and also you know to, to each sort of quote-unquote weapon or enemy you put in the game has to be interesting and so it sort of makes the work a lot harder whereas you know a game like nuclear throne you could put an enemy in that kind of just just sort of a rat that just sort of moves and if he's close enough to you, melees, and that's fine. And that's actually quite quick to do, but I had to make an enemy that would do that. But then, you know, he would also, if got taken over by the player, would then have to be controllable and then be useful and then be fun to play with the player. So it kind of created a lot of work where I wasn't, you know, it's bit like for indie developers, you, you really got to be thinking about maximizing your time. So you know, minimum effort with maximum result. I've listened to a lot of podcasts of the guys who made um, FTL and the programmer on that. He kind of thinks of the same thing. He, you know, into the breach, he said that he didn't really want to make an AI system because it's very complicated to make an RTS AI system. So he just sort of made it random and it was much easier for him. And I think these are sensible choices that, that any developers have to make. Yeah, I thought that was actually really interesting about the design of your game, making everything hackable and having that element there because I remember hacking a barrel and I was just kind of mm. rolling around. So I thought that was a really cool <laughs> yeah. thing to add to the game. Yeah. You mentioned that one of the challenges was that, well, just the implementation of making everything, making all the enemies interest, interesting and things like that and needing to pay a lot of attention to detail there. Were there any other challenges involved with creating that system of making everything hackable? So on a slight tangent but the kind of world design and the randomly generated dungeon that that was the biggest challenge and again i spent way 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 too long trying to solve that um and i kind of got to a place where it was going to be quite good if i had another two years but you know i had a publisher at that point and had only a year to make it <laughs> and so i kind of it was like minimum viable product in and out but like i've been doing a lot of reading and um 
like Derek, you wrote a book about Spelunky and he said that one of the kind of key skills that a game designer should learn or at least an indie developer is finishing. And I, I've kind of never had a problem with that. I've always, you know, there's a deadline, I get something out and it's done and you just have to abandon it and release it. And I never really had a problem with that. I never, it was always something I was kind of naturally quite good at. And with Soccer here, it was the same thing. I mean, it could have got so much further and I could have obsessed about it for years, but I had a deadline and I just sort of did the best I could in the time, got it out. Um, but sorry, back to the whole dungeon layout thing. Like originally, like like roguelikes basically do like a BSP cut up thing, which is kind of, it's sort of chopping up space. I don't really know the technical ins and outs of it, but essentially for a dungeon uh, generator, you sort of slice up a rectangle and then inside that you slice it up again randomly within, within thresholds. And then inside that you, you slice again and then you eventually create rooms out of those slices. And then you, you kind of drill together these rooms using long corridors. So that's why a lot of roguelikes have these long corridors in between. You'll notice the end of the dungeon you know, to sit with all the old classic roguelikes because they always use this BSP building. And so it kind of forced the gameplay to be boring. So I got rid of all of that and had to reinvent the dungeon by generation completely. So I started with maze algorithms. So essentially I, I was sort of using Spelunky as an as, as a inspiration where he would have tile sets. And I kind of took the same idea as tile sets and then combine it with a maze generation. So the maze, it would generate a complete maze and each part of them, each cell of the maze is, um, so mathematically it's just like a, it's just like a unit, which has how many connections you can have one connection, two connections, three connections, kind of thing. And each one of those cells would be a, um, tile set. So I'd make a, make a, a maze and then it would put all of the tile sets in and connect together. And, and the benefit I had for that is that I could tell, where the entrance and where the exit was, and then start locking those things off. And that actually was really interesting, but I just didn't have enough time to kind of really double down on that because you could start exploring that in ways where you could kind of randomly generate like a Zelda dungeon because you would kind of know, okay, I could corner off this room and I could say, you need this tool for this room and I could put it somewhere else. And you could kind of create a logic sequence of, of how to go through a dungeon and then programmatically kind of generate them. And I was kind of getting to that point, but I just sort of ran out of time. So I kind of never really realized that um, that was a real challenge. And, but that was also quite interesting. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting that you touched on the level design there or level creation, procedural generation there, because it's something I wanted to talk about as well. One thing I noticed that's really interesting is that unlike games like Binding of Isaac, where the rooms are sort of cut off and you enter the mm. room and you have to kill all the enemies inside and, sort of stage by stage there. Your game has a stealth component where, yeah, you can evade enemies. And I was wondering if that somehow changed the level design there or were there maybe some other elements to it that made it more complicated or that you had to design and customize in that way? So there's two things. It's sort of distribution of a, like you would have, you would generate the map and then it would be sort of distribution. So you'd have, I'd have to kind of scatter the right amount of enemies because you wouldn't want too many in each room. You would want their sort of navigational paths to be kind of crossing over each other so that they each got given a room. You would have a maximum amount of people that would spawn in that room. And then you would, they each got their own kind of patrol zone. So how far they could go away from the way they spawned. And that was all just to control so you wouldn't really get overwhelmed, which kind of, 
promises that made the whole game quite even and there was no kind of spike it wasn't spiky enough like in Splunky you kind of there's a lot of different reasons why Splunky works so well and it was difficult to emulate um but anyway yeah so so that was the first part and then the second part the, the stealth mechanic I just again like back to the whole not realizing and making a rough on my own back I was just like oh, they should have a line of sight and they should be able to hear sounds that would be easy and I spent a long time kind of getting them to have these kind of vision cones and then tracking the player and losing the player and being able to hear the player and stuff like that. And I don't know how much actual benefit I got out of it all, um, uh, but I did it. <laughs> yeah, I do think it, it works very well and adds a little bit of uniqueness than something that sort of makes it sets it apart from these traditional 2D roguelite action games where you're shooting around and going through these levels. Now, one thing I wanted to touch upon is the hacking system in your game. So for those who are just listening, you can walk up to enemies and hack them. So you got to mem- basically memorize a pattern quickly before the enemy you know, throws you out, you failed the hack. Mm. Can you give us a little bit of insight into how you came up with that system? Because there's a lot of games that have hacking and they're usually involved in some kind of mini games. So how did you come up with yours? So I, I guess I needed something, I mean, Going back, I was listening to a podcast from the guy, as I said, from the guy from Into the Into the Breach, and and he have like low level design and high level design, which I think is a nice way of explaining things. Where you have a kind of objective of what you want, and then you have a kind of how it actually behaves. And so the high level design for the hacking was I knew that it had to be something that has to happen while the game would. Ha- I didn't want the game to pause. So the game I I was kind of inspired by on. Uh, the C64, which, oh God, the name escapes me now, that whenever you went into a robot and hacked it, you would get a mini game that would freeze the entire game and it was quite complicated. So I knew that I didn't want that because I thought it would be more interesting to have this tense idea of you trying to kind of do something very, very simple in terms of like a mini game. But because of the added pressure of you being attacked at the same time, it sort of made it more interesting. Um, so that was the overall high objective. And then beyond that, it was just... I don't know, it was something like a board game called Mastermind. It was just like, you know, you just you just have, you kind of get, I was, I was thinking along the lines of Mastermind, whereas a Mastermind, it would kind of, you would put you would put a sequence in and then at the end it would tell you how many correct are the sequences, but you didn't know, um, you know, which which point. So say if, it, if there was green and red and you had to choose whether the tile was green or tile was red and it was three tiles, you, you would put two green and one red, and then at the end it would say, you've got one correct, but you didn't know which position that was in, so you'd, you'd be kind of experimenting to try and work out the code. So it was kind of inspired by that, but I realized that was too difficult to try and do at the same time. So in, in the end, I just ended up with you are correct or not correct, and then you just have to kind of keep those three, you know, red or blue, sorry, red or green things in your head, and then just memorize whether it was left or right. And I thought that was just enough to keep interesting while you're dealing with everything else in the game. We touched earlier on the fact that you had to teach yourself a lot of stuff after you quit your job. And we also mentioned that you were using Unity. So I'm assuming that's what your main day-to-day tasks were involved. So creating the game in Unity, doing C-sharp coding. We didn't touch too much upon how you made the art. Was it something that you outsourced to someone else, given that you didn't really feel too comfortable creating that yourself? No, I outsourced, I outsourced the art to this guy I was working with at the time in this shared office space in Dundee. He was called, uh, well, he still is, <laughs> called uh, Rude Hendricks. He's this um, 
2D Illustrator and he does these sort of quirky 2D pictures. And I was at the time going for something pixel arty and quite gritty. And I think just another developer friend said, well, why don't you just use Rude? And I was like, okay. So I sort of scraped some money together to, to pay him a little bit of money. And we just put one of his tasks in the game and it was instantly like so much more appealing. It looked really nice. Um, yeah, so so that was that really. I mean, like like he wasn't um, a developer, so he would kind of give me these vignettes in Illustrator and I have to kind of cut them all up and put them in the game myself. So I had to kind of convert it all into PSDs, you know, into Photoshop. Um, and also I animated all the characters as well because he, he wasn't an animator. So I'd have to kind of cut all the characters and animate them as well. But yeah, he, he would just give me these vignettes and I'd convert them all in. So I want to talk a little bit about marketing because I think that's a really important part of game development as well. How What was your ex- approach to, I guess, increasing the exposure of the game and getting people to sort of know about it? Yeah, that was, you know, that was the, the key lessons were um, not coming up with an original enough game early enough and also not marketing it well enough. And I think they kind of go hand in hand, like, like you got to do yourself as many favors as possible. So for an indie game, you want it to have, as, you know, to be as marketable as possible. I remember watching a video on Phil Fix, Phil Fish, sorry, and it describes how Fez was, was it compressed well, whereas basically what it means is that you could watch a GIF of it for three seconds and kind of understand the entire game. And I kind of became obsessed with the idea after finishing Socketeer because I kind of wanted something that, could market itself a lot better. And I, I feel that that was probably my key mistake was it just, you know, wasn't original enough and wasn't marketable enough. But that said, like, I I did leave it all to my publisher and they didn't really do a very good job of marketing it. I mean, no one gave any coverage to it at all. Um, and, you know, you could blame the fact that it wasn't original enough, but I think some failing has to fall at their feet for just not pushing it hard enough either. Um Okay, so you mentioned, oh, you were working with a publisher there. Okay, so... I did, yeah. What was their main task, and what did they do for you? How did they kind of help you with the development of the game? I'd be really interested to know. Yeah, I mean, like, they paid for a lot of it, which helped. Right. But, um, so, because I had, I kind of worked on it for a while and then ran out of money, so I was just like, I had a game that was, you know, not even half finished. The kind of core was there, and I was like, right, I've got to get this in a shape where I could sell it as quickly as possible. So I spent like a month or so getting it into a shape. And then I took it to GDC. I took a laptop. Um, there's some, the Scottish government offers funding to kind of pay half of your trip to GDC for you if you go. So I was like, let's take, take it there, take my laptop and just hustle. And I did. And I managed to kind of get a publisher. I just made a load of meetings with a load of publishers I'd never heard of. And then, gave them all this, the the presentation and some of them were interested in some of them won and one of them actually signed it, which was, I was just totally flabbergasted. I really thought I just had to can it and move on my life. But yeah, so they were okay. They were like reasonable people. Um, and, and essentially it was kind of, well, I don't really know that much about publishing deals because I don't always be working as a developer. So I never was that in touch with the business on a big big development studios, but I assumed it was sort of a similar thing where it was a milestone. You know, you, you gave them a schedule at the start, you gave them a budget, each milestone they'd have to pass before you get paid. 
and you'd, you'd deliver the milestone, you'd deliver like a build notes for it. You would have to say what you delivered. It'd have to match on what we agreed of in the contract. And then that was that. And it was it kind of comfortable from a development point of view. I kind of, there was some delays at the end, which made it a little bit sticky, but tricky, sorry. But like most of it seemed to kind of go quite well. But yeah, it was just really the marketing from then that didn't really set the world alight. I don't think, yeah, I don't think anyone noticed at all, really, sadly. One thing you touched on there was, I think, really interesting. So you're talking about the three seconds gift that people should realize what your game is about and kind of creating a self-marketing game. Mm. What do you think is the thing that you need to do to design a game that has those properties that is basically self-marketing? Well, my new game that I'm not going to tell you about because it's not ready is kind of built about much more about that idea. And uh, that was the key thing. I thought that I made a mistake in something and I kind of, that I think that's the thing it lacks really ultimately um, is something where you can say, Hey, this is cool. And you know, I like, there's a guy called Ryan Clark who made um, Crypt to the Necrodancer. And he said, he said that you've got to, your game's got to have a load of hooks. He does quite a few talks and he's done an article on Agamacy Toronto and stuff like that. Um, and he talks about like how your game has, should have hooks. And the more hooks you have, the more chance it has of succeeding. And so he listed his hooks for, for um, Crypto Necrodancer. One of them was the name because it's stupid. One of them was the core concept, which is like a rhythm action plus a roguelike, which is obviously again, ridiculous and just something that no one really expected and then he said even like the dancing skeletons would always kind of get a, a comment so it's the artwork and the kind of appealing aesthetic of it and i think is it, the more of these you have the more you know it's going to market itself is going to help when you release that trailer out and stuff like that and that's kind of what i think that is one of the key things for doing an indie game by yourself you need to kind of give it the best chance it's got i mean like you know perhaps once you are a success and you have you know made no man's sky or whatever and then you release another game and it's kind of about your relationship to your grandmother and it's kind of very low-key and very personal you know once you've got that kind of marked you know that that name behind you then you can kind of do those things but i think for a first project that you're trying to push out there to become a success you need to kind of give it as much chance as possible and I, I it kind of goes back to that idea and i think that that's yeah that's the key mistake i made and i'm hopefully not gonna make it again yeah i think i think honestly that is some great insight and also yeah some very honest and great reflection i want to get back to the fact that you were in the games company as an employee for a very long time and just want to gain some insights into now that you're the ceo of your own games company what is the difference there between being an employee and a solo developer and what are some of the skills that employees might need to learn before they start their own games company? Well, you've got to do it all. I mean, it's really is all, you know, like until you can pay other people to do it. And it's all the stuff that is really boring or not your bag is the, is the real problem. Like for me, this, the business stuff still, I hate all of that and like having to do your own tax returns and stuff like that. Um, but like back to the whole hustling and marketing, you know, if you want to get out there, and get a publishing deal, you need to be personable or you need to have somebody who can be personable because you need to have a relationship with these publishers and convince them that you, you know, can do the job and, and they've got to like you. That's, that's an important part of it. And 
if you aren't likable, then <laughs> team up with somebody who is, you know, like, like, I think you got to like, it's, you got to fill the gaps. I think, I think I know, and it was still only working for myself, but like back to the art thing, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to do the art. So I kind of, in the end, filled that massive hole with something, with someone I knew that could do the job. And I think that that's also good advice, but yeah, really like, like, you know, when you're developing in the games industry and you're a game designer or you're a programmer, you're just tasked with that one role. You just do programming. You just do game design, whatever that may be. You just do art. You just model, you know, cars all day. And that is it. That's literally it. Whereas, you know, unless you get other people, you're going to have to do everything. You have to, from marketing, from making a trailer, from, you know, doing sound effects, from finding music, from certification, from playtesting even, you know, like making sure, you know, bug fixing, like every single thing relating to game development and it's all going to fall at your feet and there's no one else that's going to do it. So yeah, you have to kind of get used to that idea. And some people are better at it than others. You know, the people, it, the, the problem is that people only talk about the real successes and none of the failures, but I think that you need to kind of be self-aware and recognize what you're good at and what you aren't. And if you aren't, you need to kind of look at those replacements and make sure they're in place, I guess. Yeah. I think I can imagine it being so hard to be a solo game developer because there's just so many facets there to game development. There's the art, the audio, the coding, and you got to just be this work monster that is also tweeting all the time and creating exposure for the game by sharing what they're doing and just seems incredible. We've been talking for a while. Let's get a TLDR, a wrap-up, a short summary of, of some of the things that I guess you learn from creating Socrateers and maybe some of the mistakes you'll try to avoid when mm. working on your next game. Yeah, I think I think the number one thing is to is to come up with an idea that you know that works, that's, that, that markets well. But beyond it just being a good idea, I would say before you quit your job, prototype it in your own time until it's playable and fun because that's that's again not what i did with with my first game i just sort of went oh it'll be okay i'll just sort it out whereas this time i've thrown away sort of six or seven prototypes until i found one that i was happy with and ironically like like i had i was looking for a kind of four player cooperative game because i thought you know i had I kind of chose and parameters for this new game. I was like, right, I want a game where I'm going to get the maximum amount of the minimum put in. So I think a kind of local cooperative couch co-op game is kind of my bag. I've kind of, I like those kind of games. I'm good at game feel. Um, it also, it's easier to make than making some sort of online first person shooter, you know, and also you don't have a content treadmill with something where you're playing each other you can kind of make a game that's quite small, like Rocket League, and you're going to get endless hours out of it. So I knew that I wanted to do that kind of game. Um, but I went through quite a few prototypes, and and I made one where, uh, similar to Overcooked, I was like, well, Overcooked's done well. What other kind of... I, I like the idea of making a game about... Uh, this is not a very succinct <laughs> point, is it? This is definitely a long point. Um, like... I like the idea of like making a game about jobs, you know, I always find that quite interesting. I don't know why, like cleaning or cooking and that's become kind of quite a genre now, whereas it wasn't so much when I was kind of enamored with it in the nineties. I remember seeing it, saying it to somebody in an interview at Criteria, they laughed in my face about like making a game about, about bit working in office or whatever. Um, 
but anyway so i was like yeah that's incredible yeah it just shows you a different time isn't it and um it was all about like oh bombastic you know whereas i don't believe that's kind of really what game design's about game dev tycoon very popular office game for sure yeah exactly yeah exactly yeah um so um I went through a load of genres and I, I actually came up with the idea of a removal game and I started prototyping a removal game. And I was like, I play tested it with my kid and I was like, mm, I'm not actually feeling this. This is not fun enough. And then about a month later, um, moving out got announced from team 17, the kind of four player cop removal game. So I don't think I'm alone thinking these ideas, but like, yeah, I think, I think that like coming up with an idea that, that you think is going to be fun and then prototyping as quickly as possible to demonstrate whether it is fun or not and actually be truthful with it, play it and play test it. And if people are really enjoying it, you'll know. Otherwise, you're just lying to yourself. And then if it, if it plays well and it's play tested well, then you've got something and then, you know, take it to a point where you can get a publisher. That would be my advice. Or, or you know, don't bother with a publisher. I just, that terrifies me <laughs> doing the whole Kickstarter thing. Well, thank you very, very much for that elaborate summary there. Uh, <laughs> I think you had a lot of a lot of great insights there for sure. And I have to be honest, if if Team Seventeen is, is doing something along the similar lines that you are, then I think you're onto something great and I'm sure it'll be very successful. Especially given all the very useful stuff that you've learned and have shared with us today. Tom, thank you very much for coming onto the show. Mm. And I wish you all the best with your upcoming project. Thank you. Uh, good luck with your podcast as well. Thanks for listening to this show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please consider leaving a review and subscribing on whatever platform you're listening to. For more game development content, head down to moonlightgamedevs.com. I hope you have a great week and join me for the next episode.